Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show. It is Tuesday, June 21st, 2016. Welcome to the show. We've got two authors on the show tonight. We've got Gabrielle Myers, who has a book called Hive Mind, about working at a sustainable farm and uh, some other things. And also Donna Sibo, who has a children's book called The Magical Hat. Uh, the Magic Hat, and they're both going to be on in a few minutes. So a couple of specials for this week. Uh, first of all, we're doing the show on Tuesday at 9 p.m. We usually do Wednesdays at 7 p.m., but we schedule it for Tuesday. We're going to try a different time, and we're going to have two guests for the first time. The other thing is, for the summer, due to my travel schedule, we're going to start uh, broadcasting live mostly on Mondays this summer. But uh, if you check out Facebook and Twitter, you will see uh, when the actual shows are. Now, the good news is all of our Guys Guys Radio podcasts are available for free on iTunes, on Blog Talk Radio, on Stitcher, and on TuneIn Radio. So you can catch all 185 podcasts whenever you want. They're all for free. We will be broadcasting live. as Once again, it'll be probably Monday nights for the most part during the summer at 7 p.m., or Wednesday nights, but uh, we're going to keep it flexible and try some new things out during the summer. And again, we have two guests this week, and it is uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, so it's a different time for us, and uh, I hope you enjoy the show. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on uh, before we get to our guests in uh, kind of the guys' guys' land. Um, you know, the whole guys' guys' movement came out of my novel, The Guys' Guys' Guide to Love which was published a few years ago. You can still pick it up on Amazon or any of the e-tailers, and it's still in some bookstores, but you usually can get the best deals online. And it's a story of two guys in advertising competing for love, sex, power, and money. And from there, we started Guys Guys Radio talking about relationships. And then we've kind of expanded the club to talk about men's issues and also anything that has to do with life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. With that in mind, I do my weekly blog at robertmanni.com. We've done over 250 blog posts. We're in the middle of a three-part post this week about uh, setting up your online dating profile. And um, you can read any of the blog posts. They're all posted on the website as well as videos and uh, media stuff uh, and all kinds of things on there. Uh, and a little bit about me and my philosophy, and the whole guys, guys movement, which is when men and women can be at their best, everyone wins. Better men, better world. And I think this is a time when we really need men to be at their best. There's so much going on. There's so much tension. There's so much hating out there that um, I really think that the whole guys, guys movement has come at the exact perfect time. And I'm fine-tuning our messaging, keeping it positive, and we have a lot of other things in the pipeline. I've got a... Uh, scripted TV version of the Guys, Guys, Guy to Love adaptation of the novel. We have got a pilot. We have got a treatment. We have got a screenplay, one, one that takes place in the year 2000. We have another version that takes place in the year 2016, as well as a, uh, a book that's being pitched now by my agent, a nonfiction Guys, Guys book, which I'm very excited about. And I just began writing the sequel to the guy's guy's guide to love. So there I have said it. I began writing. I've been kind of pushing it off and waiting for the right moment. And then I decided, well, let me lay out a game plan. I had, I've had the uh, framework of an outline for quite some time, but I hadn't really sat down to get started. And that's really the key. So I figured, you know what? The old adage is five pages a day. If you do five pages a day and you're consistent, in two months you'll have a 300-page manuscript. And so I'm giving myself July and August as my summer project to write my sequel to the, to the novel, The Guy's Guy's Guy to Love. So I figured, well, I've got two weeks before then. Let me, let me get myself started. So, of course, the first day, it started out a little bit slow because I wanted to – I was getting my novel writing chops back. I mean, when you wrote – I just came off writing a 40-page nonfiction proposal – which is a completely different style of writing. I do the blog post, different style of writing again. I did the TV treatment and uh, 
pilot style of writing again, and also the screenplay different type of style of writing again. So with really getting an education here while I uh, continue to find my voice and uh, propagate the guys, guys platform. So we've got all that going on. You can catch up with me on Facebook, Robert Manny author. That's M A N N I at Twitter at Robert Manny YouTube, Robert Manny author. We have lots of videos. And once again, all our podcasts for guys, guys radio are available at your listening pleasure for free on iTunes, on blog talk radio, on Stitcher and tune in radio. And again, we've got a great show tonight. A couple other things going on. Um, let's see real quick. The weather here in New York city, it's hot and sultry. It's summer weather and summer just began. So I think summer solstice was maybe today or yesterday. Um, let's see a 21st it's today actually. So today is the longest, longest day of the year. And that means every day from now until around December 21st, we'll lose one minute of daylight at the end of the day. So now we start going the other day, but we've got a long, hot summer ahead of us. And I can't wait to get started myself. I've got a lot of plans. And I, as I mentioned, working on a new book is, uh, is exciting. And I start to get into the flow. I've got about four pages done so uh, in two days. So now I'm getting into the flow of the story and it's feeling better and better. So very excited. Uh, what else? Uh, the NBA Finals. Wow. Cleveland came from behind three to one the first time ever to beat the Golden State Warriors. I think the whole series hinged upon Draymond Green getting suspended on a play where he didn't even get called for a foul. So I was a little bit dubious about the whole NBA finals this year for as it looked like it was going to be over in five and then it went seven games. And then the Cavaliers who looked like they were down and out ended up winning. And uh, Stephen Curry got a lot of fouls called at him on him. That usually doesn't happen. So I don't want to be a sourpuss Golden State fan because I really don't care that much about them. But just was a little bit fishy, this finals. But it was great basketball, fun to watch. Um, What else? I noticed on uh, that show First Take on ESPN, uh, Skip Bayless, it was his last day today. And him and Stephen A. Smith actually have had a good thing going a very provocative uh, point-counterpoint show, and it's been a lot of copycats, and you can say what you want about those two guys, uh, but they set the format for it, and I think they did a good job. So uh, good luck to Steve, uh, Stephen A. and Skip Bayless. They're both very successful, and I think Steve, uh, Skip Bayless is going to Fox anyhow for more money, so he'll be doing the same type of thing. So let's talk about our guests tonight. Um, Two different authors, two different subject matters. Uh, The first author coming on is uh, Gabrielle Myers. She's an associate professor of English at San Joaquin Delta College. She went to graduate school in her early 30s, got an MA in English from U of C at California Davis, MFA in creative writing from St. Mary's, uh, BA from Hampshire, professor of English, a writer, a chef living in the Sacramento Valley of California. And for over a decade, she's worked as a cook and a chef for San Francisco Bay Area restaurants and catering companies. And uh, her poems, essays have been published in professional journals and literary magazines. She co-authored a nutrition book, the new prostate cancer nutrition book, uh, which is a great thing. And access to her links to her poems, essays, and recipes and blog through her website, and we'll get into all of that when she gets on here. And uh, the book that we're going to talk about tonight, plus some of her work as a chef and working with sustainable uh, food, I guess, um, the name of the book is uh, Hive Mind. And uh, so let's bring her out right now and uh, talk to her and find out more about Gabrielle and more about what she's been up to with this book. Good evening, Gabrielle. How are you doing? Welcome to Guys, Guys. Hi, doing well. Thank you well, thanks. for having me on. I'm excited oh, to be here. Oh, thanks so much. Uh, you have an interesting kind of background. Tell us a little bit about, I know you were a farmer and you worked with Tip Top Produce, or an organic farm, and you've been in the Bay Area and you had some restaurants there, and then you went to the farm and you wrote this book, which is kind of a memoir, and uh, you're still involved in the food business. But could you kind of bundle it all up for us so uh, we get a sense as to really what you're up to? Sure. Um, When I was uh, in my early 20s, I ended up going to culinary school. um, And after that, I worked uh, in Bay Area restaurants. And then after that, in catering companies um, as a cook and a chef. 
And back in 2006, I decided to reconnect uh, with uh, really what the way I fell in love with cooking was through growing vegetables and herbs and then cooking with them. And so I decided to reconnect with that part of myself and go work on an organic farm. And so I asked one of the chefs I was working with, what's the best farm in the area? And he directed me to Tip Top Produce out in Vacaville, California. Um, and he mentioned that the farmer owner, uh, Laura Trent, grew the best produce around, and she really was able to pick at the peak of ripeness and bring things to market immediately and to the restaurants immediately, and that is really what distinguished her work as a farmer. Um, and so he suggested I go learn from the best, and so I ended up uh, as an apprentice uh, on Laura's farm um, during the growing season of 2006. Prior to that, I had done internships at Monticello's uh, Center for Historic Plants and worked in uh, nurseries in Virginia and in California. Um, so for me, it was a wonderful opportunity to really uh, fall back in love with the ingredients. And really the ingredients, I think, is where uh, good good cooking starts with good ingredients. And now, what was the bridge between – what was that? No, no. What was the bridge between the writing uh, and your teaching and then the cooking? And then you went from the cooking to the farming. How, how, how was the bridge between <laughs> the question. writing and the cooking? Um, for me, I had always worked on my writing um, since I was in high school. It's something that I love doing, uh, writing short stories. And really, there were uh, more memoir, memoir-like pieces that I wrote in high school. And I studied writing and uh, English in college. And then after college, I went um, in the direction of the culinary arts. And so I wanted to kind of reconnect with that part of myself as well. Um, and so I decided to, to go to the farm uh, already having graduate school kind of lined up. And so it was a little break for me. Um, for me, I, I feel like it's I'm not the kind of person where I just do one thing. I know some people, they just have one career and that's all they do from mm -hmm. the time they finish high school or college until the time they retire. But for me, I feel like there's a strong connection between uh, the the way that we, I think, grow our food, the way that we consume it and prepare it for others, the way that we describe it to others in writing. Um, and, and so for me, there was that connection there. Um I loved uh, eating food and then writing about it. And, and so um, I guess that's the, the connection. Now, what's, what's your favorite kind of food to eat? My favorite food. That's a hard one. I really love to eat. I think about food pretty much the whole day. So for me, um, I really love fish. <laughs> that's cooked right. Um, and uh, I love strawberries and blueberries and blackberries and raspberries. Those are my favorite. Um, I like food that you don't have to fuss with. I feel like the chef's mm -hmm. role is not to come up with a complicated dish that combines five different flavors, but to really think about isolating two or three flavors on a plate and letting them shine through. And so for me, it always goes back to those strong ingredients that you start with. Yeah, I agree with you, particularly with fish. I, I find that, you know, Fish is fish. You don't really have to mess with it too much. Uh, if you mess with it too much, you actually lose the real flavor of the fish, which has its mm -hmm. own natural flavor. It's not strong and overpowering, but it stands up on its own quite well, I think. Um, it does. A lot, of, a lot of people try to, you know, do too much to it. It is what it is. Um, yeah, you just want to let it shine through, right, and to its kind of fullest expression. Now, are you uh, – what's your feeling about um, – the eating organic and, uh, or are you a vegetarian or your whole, what's your kind of food philosophy? Um, I try to get things from local sources. Um, and I try to get things that are grown organically as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I feel like the food choices that we make, we have to realize they don't just impact us. Of course they do. They impact our body and I think, you know, how healthy we are, but really they also impact the people that are picking our food and the businesses right. that are growing it. And I feel like, you know, you vote with, with your food dollars. And if you 
or buying something that's produced in the conventional system, more often than not, you're supporting these the pesticides and chemical fertilizers, and there are people that pick that food that are exposed to that. And often, you know, they are protected, but often they're not protected from those pesticides. And I think that it matters um, when we buy something what we can mm-hmm. the story we tell about it. So, um, so when I can buy the organic, I do. Um, but definitely seasonal produce is uh, yeah. where where I fall. Um, getting you know, it am- fresh, getting it mm-hmm. from from local sources, and then it's always fresher anyway, right? Than if it has traveled up from Mexico or Peru. It is amazing though the taste difference between organic produce and uh, I guess GMO uh, or mm-hmm. those that have been treated with pesticides. I mean, the oranges are mealy. The tomatoes have no flavor. Uh, it's like it's it's really the strawberries. It's it's really night and day. Mm-hmm. And to pay is, a little more, you get so much more nutrition and so much more flavor. It actually turns out to be cheaper in in many ways because you're getting far more sustenance. Because I don't I think one of the things that people don't understand and correct me if I'm wrong about farming nowadays is they don't rotate the crops anymore, and so the soil is less nutrient dense. And so just by virtue of being overused. You know, you're not getting as much, much nutrition anymore, regardless if it's organic or not organic. So mm-hmm. once you just start eating the factory kind of farm produce, you really, you know, you're getting pesticides, it's, you're losing weak soil, it's just you're hurting the workers, um, etc. So I'm in New York and, uh, you know, people are hip to everything now, but probably not to the point where they are in California in terms of food. Um, what's the latest thinking now about uh, food out there? Because you guys um, shot down the I GMO think, labeling, which I was kind of surprised. Yeah, I was surprised about that, too. I think the reason that got shot down is the lobbying groups pumping money into the campaign um, on behalf of the chemical companies, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Um, but I think that there's a – it's a growing awareness, and I feel like the awareness in California um, has been growing for – a few decades uh, in terms of understanding what we and how it impacts not just us, but others. Um, and also being aware of, I think the cumulative kind of impact on the environment, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the central Valley, I drive through that every day on my way to work and there you can see kind of the full effects of the drought playing out, but also the full effects of mono uh, cropping as well. Um, so there's, you know, a field of just one thing and a field of just another thing. And it's usually people use that land for that one thing until they can't use it anymore for that one thing. And then the land almost lies barren is what it looks like. So I think that people are becoming aware of that, but it, perhaps it took us getting to this point to see the consequences in action. And there's also Mm -hmm. an awareness too, I think of, you know, the pollution that is spilling into the valley and the air pollution is better than I think it was um, years ago, but it's still, you know, it impacts people's health. Um, so there's a, no. an awareness of, of that as well and how we treat not just uh, the land, but the air and the water, um, it matters. Now tell us about Hive Mind. Uh, what, what's the book about? What's the core central message? It's set up a little bit different than most books. You've got a mixture of poetry, prose. You've got memoir aspects to it. You have, you know, dr- dramatic turns in it. Tell us about tell us about the book. So, Have Mine takes place during the growing season of 2006, um, and uh, it takes place on a Tip Top Farm in Vacaville, and it kind of follows the arc of the growing season. It, the story. Uh, of what happened on the farm is told through uh, basically what appears as a journal entry, a series of journal entries, and then poetic fragments. Um, and then there are also flashbacks uh, to about, well, to up to, gosh, like 15 years prior, um, leading up to that present, present point in time. Um, so it tells uh, the story of uh, my uh my apprenticeship on the farm and also um, my, my friendship in, uh, I guess she was a, a mentor to me as well, um, Laura Trent and, and kind of what happened to her on the farm. Um, it deals a lot with 
I guess, the making the decision to live uh, while others around you make another decision and kind of accepting, I guess, the consequences of both actions and what that really means. Uh, tell us a little um, bit more about focus. that. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about um, that. Well, in life, you know, we're faced with a lot of really difficult moments, um, moments that often we can't see our way around. And I think, you know, none, we, we don't have a map, really, of how we deal with that. Often those are the moments where the map falls apart and kind of shreds in our hands, and we have to kind of pull on our inner, I guess, resources to figure out our way around it. And, you know, sometimes we make bad decisions, and then sometimes we make good decisions, and I guess – a central question in the, the memoir is what makes us make those good decisions and what makes us make those bad decisions mm-hmm. in our mind. And it comes back, I think, to the stories that we tell ourselves, stories that we, I don't know, weave that predict what we believe that we're capable of. And I guess the, the, the memoir sifts through that. No. In addition to that, there's also a focus on food and cooking and uh, pulling tomatoes uh, right off the plant and uh, cooking with them and and dealing with them and putting them on a plate or uh, pulling torpedo onions out of the soil and they're still warm and fragrant and rich with the soil um, that still clings to them and uh, what do we do with that? How do we make it sing? Um, And so lots of uh, the memoir is about food and about the cooking process and connecting it to the earth. So when you went to the farm and you worked there for a while, what um, what type of epiphanies or what did you really learn about yourself by working on a farm that you wouldn't have learned otherwise? Because, you know, you went from the English background to uh, working in a restaurant and then getting right to where the food comes out of the ground. And w- what what did you learn through the, that, that journey, if you will? Because it's very interesting. Uh, I learned... I guess about the cycle that plays out in nature also plays out inside of us. If we own ourselves, I think, and given also to that, to that cycle. So often I think people remove themselves from their environment from the natural landscape. And (laughs) I'm, I'm our studio is in New York. Uptown. So I, can hear it. I gotta I tell you, it. every time <laughs> I, I do this here. show at this time, it's like twenty minutes into a show, no matter what time the show is, I get a siren. I can't avoid it. And it goes right to my this big window that's near me that's closed. But anyhow. Um, welcome to Harlem. So it, it, yeah. <laughs> that's a sign of the where we are, right? I love it. <laughs> um so I guess there was this awareness of couldn't avoid looking at the natural cycle of things and facing that. And then also, I guess, facing my own cycle of processing experiences and memories. And part of the memoir is I'm processing kind of a traumatic event that happened with my mom and trying to understand that. And I had to, I feel like I had to leave the restaurant industry and kind of the chaos and the fast pace of that in order to make sense out of things. And when you're on the farm, I was living in a yurt and there were, uh, anywhere from three to two people living at the farm during that time. So I was forced to really take a close look at, uh, I don't know, how I became the person that I was at that point and mm-hmm. the person that I was prior to that point and then think about how I can become the person that I want to be and kind of grounding that in the cycle of the daily work. Farming is a lot of physical, you know, very hard work. You're up at the crack of dawn and you're moving and lifting and pulling and, uh, jumping on things and <laughs> you're doing that until pretty much it's uh, dark. So that intense work uh, in many ways got me out of my head, but then also helped me kind of become grounded in who I was, I think more than any other experience in my life uh, up to that point. And how did it impact your cooking for living on the farm? What'd you get out of that and how did it help your cooking? or help or impact it, really? Mm-hmm. It forced me to be more resourceful. So 
so often when you work in restaurants and catering companies, you think about, okay, what do I want to cook now? What do I think is seasonal? And then you order it and it comes and you cook with it and you do your best to respond to the ingredient that's in front of you. But when you're on a farm, you look around you and you pull out what you can pull out. (laughs) That's right. And uh, also you become really inventive in terms of working with some ingredients that you normally wouldn't see in a catering company or a restaurant. One example is this year, 2006, it was a very wet year. It was so rainy that the farmers couldn't get in the fields to plant their tomatoes until it was pretty late. And it was a stressful time, I think, for many farmers mm-hmm. because really a lot of the money they earn depends on how early they can get those tomatoes and other crops in the ground and growing so they're ready for June. Um, and so they're kind of first to hit the market. And that year was just so wet and it was stressful all around and, but one thing that the farmer noticed and that we began to harvest and sell at the market was amaranth and purslane grows mm-hmm. as a weed in California. And it was growing in between the rows and it was gorgeous. So all these green, uh, yeah. green weeds were growing and we decided to harvest them because in a lot of, you know, especially restaurants, uh, high class restaurants restaurants are looking for specialty produce that they can kind of uh, claim in terms of being original with. And so we decided to start harvesting those weeds and selling them at the market. And they taste delicious. First lane with goat cheese in particular and beets is uh, fantastic. And so we started selling that. And then the amaranth is something that you can uh, wilt down and cook like uh, spinach. Um, And so we started selling those and then also cooking with those because that's what we had to work with. So I guess on the farm, you're forced to work with what's in front of you, um, literally what you can come in contact with that day. Um, and that uh, that constraint pushes you, I think, to be more creative. Just like with my blog, um, it's gluten and it's dairy-free and seasonal. And those are significant constraints to put on all the recipes that you develop. But I feel like mm-hmm. that actually forces me to be more creative. It's like if you're sure. a poet and you have to write a sonnet, you're going to – figure out a way to express what you want to say within the constraints of that form. I think cooking is is similar to that. That's where like the really exciting and surprising combinations come about is when you're first to kind of work within, within that box. Mm -hmm. Now there's some drama in the book with both your mother and um, Laura uh, Trent so tell us a little bit about that, and there are any parallels between the two experiences and and what what went on with both Laura Trent mm-hmm. and then your mom so the the parallels are uh haunting um my mom back in uh two thousand and four was struggling with uh, a lot of things and she um was struggling with uh alcoholism at the time and um, also had severe back pain and um, it had all kind of built up over the course of decades, a lot of stuff. And uh, she ended up um, attempting suicide um, right on uh, New Year's Day after a fight with my father. Um, and that was after a trip out here to California. Um, so she was, uh, it looked like she wasn't going to make it. She was in a coma for 72 hours. Um, and the doctors at one point said, you know, if she does come out of it, she might be a vegetable. Um, but mm-hmm. thankfully she survived. And then within maybe a month after that, she went in uh, to rehab for three months, did a lot of hard work with AA, still doing you know, the, the work with AA and really took, a, I think, a close look at why she made that attempt, but also, um, you know, what what makes us alcoholic, what makes us addicted to things, and how can mm-hmm. we kind of program ourselves to live without those substances that we feel at one point like we really need in order to survive and get through a, a day. Um, and so she, you know, has done that hard work and she's amazing right now. Maybe I can spend some more time talking about that later. So don't get too far off from the original question, but she's just really turned her life around. Um, and then Laura Trent, well, when I was on the farm, 
uh, towards the end of the growing season, at the end of September, uh, she ended up uh, taking her life um, with a gun. Um, And her attempt was uh, successful, which sounds weird to even say that, but she made, she, you know. uh, Was that a surprise to you? It was. Looking back now, I can see kind of the threads or the the signs that I couldn't see at the time. Um, Some of the things that she kind of said in an offhand manner that I assumed were jokes or she was just maybe, you know, having an odd sense of humor. Um, Now I can see that perhaps those were signs that I just couldn't read before. You know, relationships are difficult, and sometimes you see the signs in retrospect that you didn't see when you were walking through the experience. Right. Um, Like, it seems like, uh, you know, I'd mentioned something about the fall or the winter or next year, and she would say, like, you know, if I ever make it that far or if I get that far, you know, if I live in or so things like that that I ignored at the time, I guess, because I just thought, oh, well, she's just, you know, being Laura. Now I can see that there maybe were subtle cries for help. Mm-hmm. So um, she was depressed, you know, and she's battled depression for a while and I think anxiety. And so we had talked about that. Um, we talked about that while we were working in the fields um, on several occasions. Just, you know, I had at, during my early 20s, uh, I had some struggles with depression and um and with substance abuse and Laura as well, you know, had kind of gone through that. And so we had connections and at all, you know, really in the end uh, connected back to what happened with my mom. And so we had conversations in the field, you know, about uh, how she was going to, how she was on antidepressants and she was trying to find the right combination and, you know, how things weren't really working, but she wasn't sure what to do with that. Um, But there was also a relationship that ended um, that kind of coincided with her taking of her life. And so I think that, you know, there's never just kind of one reason why somebody makes that decision. There are a couple combinations at work, right? Do you you find that there is any, um, because, you know, I noticed when I watched Chopped and stuff uh, that there seems to be a lot of people who have substance abuse or some type of background of some type of addiction or whatever, or depression that get into the, they f- kind of find themselves in the food business um, mm-hmm. as, a, as a good thing. Um, you yeah. think there's any connection at all to the food business and people coming out of some, certain addictions or being in, you know, involved in any type of addictions, or is that just mm-hmm. some type of you know, grandmother's research I'm doing? No, I see the connection. I mean, I think in some ways the the industry kind of that type of behavior in people because it, you're working late nights. It's very high pace. I mean, depending on the restaurant you're right. in, of course, but it can be very high stress, high pace. You're up usually. You know, you don't get off work until maybe if you're lucky midnight, maybe later. And what do people do usually late at night? Is they drink or they do drugs and they hang out. <laughs> so sure. I think that you know that aspect of the industry kind of breeds that type of behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also it can act uh, in, in some ways to not cure it, but as a way to get out of that because you're grounded in the creation process. That's what you work right. on really throughout the day. You're creating something that nourishes mm-hmm. somebody else. And I think right. that's kind of the way to connect with it. And, and also you're active and you're moving around and there's no time to really sit and think about um, things Right. For more than like 30 seconds <laughs> while mm-hmm. your fish is cooking and then you have to go play it, right? I get I it. That, that so high level of action uh, keeps, you, keeps mm-hmm. you going in the world and some bad things too. All right. The name of the book is uh, Hive Mind, and our special guest has been uh, Gabrielle Myers. Where can everybody find more about you, Gabrielle, and uh, find your book? And, and are you working at a restaurant now or whatever? Give us a little bit of a background on where they can find you, and then uh, we'll let you go. Okay. Well, the book is available on Amazon, and it's called Hive Mind. And you can also check out my uh, recipe blog and links to articles, poems, and uh, essays through 
Gabrielle Myers. That's M-Y-E-R-S dot com. Um, and right now, I'm lucky and very thankful to be a full-time English associate, professor of English um, at San Joaquin Delta College. So it's oh, a great fantastic. school. Um, it's mm-hmm. in the Central Valley in Stockton. Um, I have great students and wonderful people that I work with. So I couldn't be happier about that. And I love teaching. Um, I think there's nothing more exciting than helping uh, students develop their own original voices yep. um, to contribute to the conversation. So that's a, a quick rundown. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Well, listen, thank you so much for being our guest. you think we're going to find you uh, relocating into another restaurant at some point in the future in maybe the San Francisco area? You know, probably you done with that? I think I'm going to stick with teaching. Yeah, but I'm going to okay. keep posting recipes. And I'm working on Great. a cookbook if anybody's interested on oh, seasonal fantastic. grilling cookbooks. So. All right. Um, yeah, I just need to find a publisher, and I'll be, I have it all completed, so. So I'll be Good. more expressing, you know, my love for cooking through my writing and uh, keep teaching. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Gabrielle, it's been a pleasure to meet you. Congratulations on your book, Hive Mind, and for all your wonderful experiences and interesting experiences. And uh, we'll make sure that everybody out there keeps an eye out for your new recipe book when it comes out and uh, checks out Hive Mind and your website. Thank you, Robert. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. All right. Be well. Cheers. Peace. Okay, everybody, that was uh, Gabrielle Myers, our, our first guest for the evening. As I mentioned, this is a different show. This is the first time I'm having two guests in one evening and uh, two different authors, two different very subject matters. Uh, so let's get right into talking about our next special guest uh, by the name of Donna Sibo. Uh, she's got a book called The Magic Hat, and it's a, kind of a kid's book. I read it today. It's about a nurse named Annie who is batty about hats and a little girl named Julie who lives a miracle and a princess who gives a special test to a king. Um, you can get the book on CD. Uh, you can get a download. It's for really for kids uh, 7 through 12. Uh, a little bit about Donna. Um, she uh, Fascinating. She's an international mental practitioner and a psychic, so maybe she'll have something to tell us about the guy's guy here, uh, award-winning author, counselor, teacher, minister, publisher, radio TV personality. And since 2001, she's hosted a daily radio program called the Donna Sibo show and additional weekly program warriors for peace. And she has guests from around the world. So this should be a fun conversation. She's considered one of the best interviewers in the country. So now she's on the other side of the desk, but uh, we'll have a discussion and she delights in empowering others. So let's, uh, Let's bring her on right now. Good evening, Don, and welcome to Guys Guys Radio. How are you? Robert, I'm doing absolutely wonderfully, and thank you so much for <laughs> inviting me to be on your show today. This is a delight. <laughs> well, it's called Guys Guys Radio, but it's really about when men and women can be at their best, everyone wins. So I haven't flipped the show totally over towards just dealing with men's subjects because I think there's so much that men need to do to expand themselves. And so a lot of what I've done over the last couple of years is to, you know, we've talked about relationships and things like that, but then we've expanded to get into spirituality, metaphysical stuff, every type of author and personality and anything that has to do with life, love and the pursuit of happiness and really trying to expand the consciousness, if you will, of men uh, as well as the women who care about them. Uh, And I, I think women are a lot more advanced than men in many ways but uh, men, men uh, are in a crossroads, and they need help, and uh, I'm here to help, and I think women need to help men also, and I think when men and women can be at their best, everyone wins. So I want to congratulate you on your book, The Magic Hat, but also on all this other wonderful work that you're doing. Tell us about, a little bit, if you don't mind, about your being an international mental practitioner and a psychic. <laughs> oh well, that is that is something that has been actually my life's work. In fact, I incorporate it into just about everything that I do because I feel it is such a significant part of life, the intuitive self. And you know, your programming oriented towards men and women both, I think is a wonderful wonderful thing to do. And I'll tell you why, Robert. I think there has been a very sad paradigm that has evolved through generations, and that is that, number one, men and women cannot communicate well, which I think is 
fraudulent in its content. But we have set up so many barriers, and it's still present in various cultures. We experience it here even in the United States. But no matter where we are, it's up, I think, to the individual, especially those of us who are wiser to realize, yes, there are differences between the male and the female. For heaven's sake, that's where it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. However... When it comes to communication, when it comes to dealing with problems, for example, in the intuitive area, men work with it frequently very differently from women. And part of that, and this comes from my observation and experience in the work and development skills of mind, which I'm constantly learning about. There, You never get to the end of the yellow brick road on this one. But it is something that enables you to realize that when... You can recognize the uniqueness of an individual, and then you can focus on how to empower that individual in whatever environment they're the most comfortable in. You go a long way to opening up communication. You go a long Very way true. to enabling people to understand we don't need to be in this war. It's not a war of men against women or women against men. If we're going to declare war, let's declare war against fear, ignorance, and superstition. That's my adage. And being in the work of mind, I have seen how when men and women can openly communicate and they can develop their own intuitive skills, which has been my life's work, it is something that frees them. They don't get locked into the paradigm. So, again, I want to compliment you on your show format, because I think it goes a long way to empowering people, men and women both. We don't have to look at each other like we're aliens from 500 million different planets. We're not. We are part of this expression of life, and I think that's a dynamic we don't ever want to forget. Yeah, well, thank you very much for the kind words. I mean, it's not, it's it's a little bit tricky in that, um, for men, because, uh, as you know, women are a little more open about talking about their feelings and their consciousness and thinking and open to new things a little more than guys are sometimes. And so when I'm, tr- when I'm reaching out to men, I've got the millennial guys, they're caught somewhere between the MMA and manscaping. And then you've got the older guys, the boomer guys who are, uh, have been trained to kind of validate and value themselves based on what their job is or their bankroll and um, it's, it's tough to get, to, you know, men are a huge audience, but it's not easy to get to men because they kind of tune out. Uh, it's like they don't want to hear anything new. Uh, men remind me of my parents sometimes where, like, my parents don't want to hear anything new. They've got great values, but sometimes new stuff makes them uncomfortable and they'd rather just, you know, they're older now. It's like, I don't want to know. Like, please, you're upsetting. It's like, I think a lot of people don't want to, they'd be, they're afraid and particularly men, they're afraid that everything they've done might be and their perspective might have been wrong. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. It could be true. the greatest gift they've ever gotten. And I'm going to keep plugging away until I break through with this because men, I think are in, deep inside want to know the truth, but they are blocking themselves from the truth because it's, they're afraid of being exposed and being found out that they were wrong. But it's okay to be wrong, because once you know that you've been wrong, then you're on the way to being right. And there really is no wrong and right. It's just about being, isn't it, Donna? Well, I think that's true. I think what is not often understood that what you've just mentioned applies to men and women both being Mm -hmm. a female and i've gone through times in my life where i had a stubborn streak that was unbelievable of course most people that i know wouldn't even you know say oh donna you're not that stubborn oh yes i can be that stubborn (laughs) and i think what it is i think it has to do with fear because whenever you come into an area of the unknown and that's one of the things that i absolutely adore about doing my show because i've interviewed people from Well, I've interviewed well over 3,000 people, and you cannot go through that kind of diversity, which I have on my programming. You cannot have that diversity and not get out of your box. I think it's a very tribal kind of thinking, and I use that word deliberately because so many times we don't want to not fit 
whether we're male or female. We don't mm-hmm. want to not fit. We'll do everything we can to fit, and then we find out that the corset of attitude or cultural environment or whatever we're in, it doesn't work. It, it just doesn't suit us. So we have to make a decision. Either we are going to stay in our misery or we're going to grow up and grow out of it. Are we going to, as individuals, take the positioning of taking our own power back? Mm-hmm. And yep. we don't have to beat everybody else up, but we have to say, wait a minute, this doesn't fit. I'm not a size zero. I'm a size 45. I am not something that is a little tiny petite thing. I'm a giant that wants to reach up to the universe. So Mm -hmm. there is so much, and I know I'm being sort of melodramatic with my examples, but it's for a purpose. I think that we are here as individuals and also as a part of this experience called the human being. And we are here to be able to take whatever talents and skills we have, regardless of our sex. It doesn't make any difference. But when we try to fix it, fit into that that doesn't fit us, and we do everything we can, we become contortionists, and we lie to ourselves, whether you're male or female, you're going to end up with a real mucky mess until finally, just like you said, you can say, this is the wrong thing for me. This isn't right. And when you acknowledge that, you actually are freed. Now, everybody else around you may think, oh, this is terrible. You don't have the right to do this. But you do have the right to do it. You do have the right to become acquainted with yourself, to become comfortable in your own skin, and to have a woohoo attitude about life that enables you to realize that life is this rich, vibrant experience that beckons to you that is not going to give you security, that, yes, you're going to stumble and fall, you're going to have your failures, you're going to even have moments when your deodorant fails, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. It's what you do with your life and how you pick yourself up, polish everything into place, and say, all right, that didn't work, so now where do I go from here? And realize that you're a human being meant to grow to be the best of your potential that you were given in this wonderful experience of life for all of its naysayers and doomsayers and the ugly things that go on i can tell you for a fact there is so much beauty and if we just focus on really the right the good and the just within ourselves we become so bright that other people say i want to rub shoulders with you because i want what you've got i agree completely um it seems like you know so many people are trying so hard to be doing where they might want to consider not trying so hard and just being uh, to to get give them what they really are looking for and being careful to be instead of being in the state of want because if you're in the state of want you keep wanting uh it's a tricky one it's not easy for mm-hmm. people to uh, make that shift i think it takes time i think it takes years but it's doable and you can if you can do it you can start really having a more fulfilling experience than always striving, if you will. Oh, so I agree. So let's talk a little bit about the book. It's a fascinating book, as, as I mentioned earlier, and it says in the notes that it's for, you know, kids, probably around 7 or 12 seems about right. I read it today. Tell us what your inspiration was, a little bit about your illustrator, C.A. Johnson, and uh, is the story about the magic hat and Annie a metaphor for anything? Or tell, tell us a little bit about the meaning behind it. Because I think when I read it, I found I got something out of it as an adult. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a story for a kid in there, you know, the superficial surface story that subconsciously affects kids. But I think there's an adult story within it also. I agree with that. This story was written, believe it or not, 40 years ago. And I came out with my very first children's publication, which, by the way, the first one I did won an award for a best children's book. And this one won an award. It hadn't been even out two weeks. And I'm just thrilled as a best children's book. And I've always been a writer. I've always loved writing. And the reason I've enjoyed it is that I was unaware of the fact that I'm a natural storyteller. I do this every day on the, on the air. I tell stories. Whenever I'm speaking, obviously I'm telling stories. 
as a counselor, I have found stories very effective. And there are just what I get these downloads. That's the only way I know how to explain it. It's as if something comes along and says, oh, ka-ching, this brain seems to be open for a little bit of receptivity. And the reason that the magic hat evolved is because I really feel there's a very strong mind-body connection in life. And this comes from personal experiences that I've had where I ended up with physiological conditions because of a mental state of concern and worry and anxiousness. Mm -hmm. And maybe some of your listeners can relate to that too. And once I addressed the cause of the problem, then it went away. And but I mm-hmm. had to address the cause. This story about Annie. Annie came to life as a person who loved working with children. And Annie is this individual and this is a nineteen fifties period format. Everything in it it's related to a certain area in the South, the type of lifestyle that would be there and we put all of I put all of this together and the communication with people, there are many subtle points. Whenever I write stories, there's always these little subtle undertones. Number one, Annie is a person that has this eccentricity about hats. She just loves thrift stores, loves shopping mm-hmm. for these bargains. And so she finds this hat, and it's ugly. I mean, it really is something that nobody in their right mind, they wouldn't even put, a, put this on a corpse. But anyway, that she picks it up. She just loves it. She goes into the hospital, and she finds out about a little girl. And this little girl's name is Julie, and Julie is dying. They're doing all of the best that they can medically. Uh, her physical body seems to be responding to treatments, but her heart, her spirit just isn't there. She was involved in a horrific accident. So in our words today, we might call it a trauma, severe trauma experience. And so nobody can reach her. Yet here is Annie that looks at this child and talks to this child and helps this child to all of a sudden start paying attention. And she uses this silly hat. And she has the hat placed in a position where Julie can see it. Well, what do little girls do? Little girls always like hats, don't they, typically? Yep. They, they love to dress up. They love to do different things. So Annie knew as a nurse working with children she needed something to grab this child's attention because this child's in pain this child is very sick so she uses this hat she ends up coming back and she invents a story she invents this wonderful story and at the time when she comes back to see the child the child wants to hear the story so she's gotten this child to make a shift in her thinking, she is shifting what she's giving attention to. And that's a subtle message. And then she tells this wonderful story about a princess and a king who wants to marry. His name is Kadafel. Don't ask me where that name came from because I couldn't tell you in a million years. It just was in this download. And Kadafel loves this princess. He wants to marry her, but he's got to prove his love. He has to prove his value. So that's where he goes to search for the magic hat. And, of course, Annie has a king of horses in the story. She has this crystal that within the crystal there's this magic hat, and the king has to get the hat, and the only way he can get it is if he really loves the princess. And all of this has to be done in a day. You know, we're, we live in this time period where everything has to be done fast. Well, that's what of happened course. to him. He didn't have the Internet, but he had the next best thing. He had the king of horses. So anyway, you you go through this, and he comes back to the princess, and he thinks he's failed. He thinks he has failed because when he pulls the hat out, it's a whole different set of colors. But where he thinks he's failed, he has not because the princess tells Mm -hmm. him what all of the colors mean. So Annie, when she winds up this story, here's this wonderful story, and Julie is totally engrossed in the story, and she is saying to herself, the child is paying attention. This is working. And she tells Julie something very important. She said to Julie, you're a princess, and one day you're going to find your prince. Now, there's more of the story about what happens with Julie and some other things that go on, but there's an epilogue to this story that I think is very powerful. 
And that is that Julie ends up coming back to Annie because she had promised Annie, and she's just a little girl when she makes a promise, that one day she was going to bring this hat back. Well, it's a number of years later. And she brings it back, and she tells Annie, Annie, everything you told me came true. Now, when you ask about the subtleties, love is something you cannot put in a box. And this is about love. It is about the power of love working with story and how a child as well as an adult can be affected by what they hear, how important words are. And Carol Ann Johnson, who is the artist, I've known Carol for over 20 years. In fact, she was my webmaster for a good 15 to 16 years. And she is the most incredible artist. And we got together. It took us a year to put the book together, to put the layout together. And we would brainstorm over what I wanted in the way of artistic expression. We spent more than one meeting, and we had this this rapport mentally. And I would give her the concepts. We'd work through certain details, and then I'd say, go for it. And she did. And she often would surpass my expectations. But the way the people look, the dress, the settings, everything here, the story is, some, is a story that's meant to be a classic. It could be told a thousand years from now, and it would still be something that would touch people's hearts and minds. And that's what I do when I write. I want this mm-hmm. to stay as something that will touch people's hearts and minds. Fantastic. Well, I think you've done that. Excellent job. Beautiful illustrations. And it's a... It is a timeless story that I think kids can relate to as well as adults. So thank you for for that gift. Um, Where can our listeners find out more about you, Donna? Where can they find you? Where can they find the Magic Hat, the radio show, all of that? Well, all they have to do is keep it simple. Just Google my name, Donna Sebo, and that's S like Sam, two E's like Edward, B like boy, O. All kinds of links will pop up. You'll have a link to MrsSeboesClassics.com where you'll find not just the magic hat, but God's Kiss, the mm-hmm. Miracle of Eight Pennies, and also Mind Magic. All of that is there. We have it in ebook format. They can go to Amazon, Create Space, and LinkedIn. Not LinkedIn. Um, oh, what do I want to say? Uh, Kindle. Too mm-hmm. much social media going on. <laughs> anyway. Um, the Magic Hat is there. You, and when you go to Mrs. Sebo's Classics, you can see all of the artwork. It's there. It's just beautiful to view. And you can listen even to a clip of the audio book itself. And also you can go to DelphiInternational.com. You'll find a tab on the Donna Sebo Show and on Warriors for Peace. I do six radio shows a week, and all the archives are available to people. And I'm on from 9 to 10 Pacific time, and then that's Monday through Friday, and then on Wednesdays, Warriors for Peace is 11 until noon. So they can go there, just Google Donna Sebo, and you'll find all of those links conveniently available. What is, what's the difference between the two shows, Donna? The, two radio the difference shows. between the two shows is that I do interviews five days a week, the interviews are a half hour in length, and then the show is open for people that want to call in and mm-hmm. get a reading from me on the air. And then Warriors for Peace is a very special show that started in September of 2014. I interview various people from around the world who are dedicated to creating peace in the environment, whether it's on a national or international level. I interview veterans who have served this is uh, almost 55 minutes, almost to an hour. That's fantastic. Uninterrupted. Yes, I love what I do. How about a quick reading of The Guy's Guy, right here live on the radio? All right. First of all, you're going to have to look at your financial management and how you want to work with an expansion in an area of communication that's of interest to you. This is something you have been working on for the past two it's, Your thoughts went back about six years ago. You need to look at how economically you want to make this work. You're going to do some trial runs with whatever this is in this communication format. And when you do the trial run, you're going to find some eh, not-so-good things and then some other positive things. Be patient with this. Give yourself about six to eight months to work the bugs out and then go for it. 
and I think you're going to get a very good supportive response. Also, this factor with your stomach and your lower back. You could go to someone that is very knowledgeable about Ayurvedic medicine, and they will be able to help you so that this discomfort in the lower part of your back that actually is related to some nerve endings that are associated with the stomach. For some reason, the stomach and the back area are integrated. I don't know how or why. I'm not a doctor, but it's the nerve endings. There's a relationship here. And this can be alleviated where you don't have to be bothered with it at all. It is a dietary aspect as well as something physiologically you need to do. I don't know if it's some kind of a stretching exercise or what it is, but your body sends pain messages into those two parts of the body in a way and manner to let you know that it's a barometer for you to take care of yourself. Hmm, interesting. Um... I have had a tight back, but it's kind of gone away. I was muscular-related, I thought, and uh, it's interesting. So uh, no problems with the stomach, but I did have two, uh, I did have two uh, robotic surgeries two years ago. Big surprise out of the blue on my kidneys, and everything fortunately was fine and is fine so hopefully it's not related to that but um no it's not this is something entirely different and this is not something that has to be permanent mm -hmm. this is something that when it shows up it's um, a signal the body is using the nerves to give you a signal to pay attention but somehow they're related now again i'm not a physician i'm just getting the images in my head and what type images, of doctor go ahead i said I am not a doctor. Mm -hmm. Oh, Ayurvedic, an East Indian type of a doctor. Oh, okay, yes. I am, actually am going to yeah. one in uh, August. I have I got connected through uh, Ahmad Ghazwami, who you probably are aware of. Yes, and I'm I am. Go to Very one, fine yeah. man. Yes, and uh, so I'm going to go to one in New York this August. Well, I think you will find that there is something that they will give you in the way of information regarding a dietary patterning. And it's nothing serious. You know, it's nothing real dramatic. It's very subtle. But, again, this is something, and if you've had back problems in the past and it had to do with the muscles, there is something within the nerve structure in the body mm -hmm. that relates from the stomach to the back, to the hmm, lower back. Interesting. Okay. Well, I will be aware of that. And on the communication thing, does that have to do with my radio show? Is that what you're referring to? I'm not quite sure. I think the radio show will be integrated within it, but I don't okay. know that that's the total package. I don't think so. I think it is a combination of things. It's a thought. It is a, it's a concept, actually multiple concepts. I'm looking at seven different points of ideas, and I'm seeing you trying to figure out how to bring them together into yes. a cohesive package. Yes, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and that's what I do. That's fantastic. Well, listen, you've been a, a, a delight to have on the show, and congratulations again on the book. I hope we can stay in touch, and who knows, maybe someday you might invite me on one of your radio shows. So we'll you I'll just never keep know, Robert. Cross. And I want to, <laughs> I want to thank you very much for having me as a guest today. And the Magic Hat is near and dear to my heart. So for those listening, do check it out. Go to MrsSiebelsClassics.com. Just Google my name. Donna Sibo, and you'll find the link readily available. It is a fabulous gift, and it really ma is making a difference with families, and it's just, it's fabulous. Oh, fantastic. Well, listen, thanks so much, Donna. It's such a pleasure, and our uh, all the best also. We have a mutual friend in Sarah, and uh, she speaks so highly of you, and uh, I was excited to have you on the show because of that, because she's a wonderful lady and has been very helpful to me. Well, Sarah is terrific. I have known her for years, and because of the work she does, we have had a long-time association. So I'm very grateful for the connection, Robert. Thank you ever so much. Okay. Be well, and thanks, Donna. I hope we talk again at some point. I look forward to that, Robert. God All right. Bless. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right. God bless you. Okay, folks, that was Donna Sebo. Her book is The Magic Hat. Please check it out. And uh, that ends our show for this evening. Wow, we did a whole hour. 
We had two guests for the first time. As I mentioned earlier in the show, I want to break up the format a little bit over the summer. We're going to tackle different issues, different types of guests. We're going to bundle some guests. We're going to do different days of the week, but we'll be here. So next week, actually, we're on a, I think we're on Monday night of next week, and we have um, Nigel Wellings is going to be our guest, and he wrote a book called Why Can't I Meditate? And it's pretty interesting because he's got a book. I've got it right here, and it's like 300 pages long about why you can't meditate. So I'm interested to take a look at that and figure out why it takes 300 pages to figure out why you can't meditate. But uh, it should be an interesting conversation because uh, uh, it looks like a really interesting concept. So anyhow... That's our show. I hope everybody enjoys the summer, gets a great start to it. And remember that uh, when men and women can be at their best, everyone wins. And of course, as like I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first. <laughs>